Thank you, Lord. I hope you all aren't tired already. I said, I hope you all aren't tired already. Tell somebody next to you, say, you better wake up. We're just getting started. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Tell somebody around you, say, it's good to see you tonight. Jesus. Hallelujah. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. Hallelujah. <clears throat> I want to do something tonight. If you're, if you're here tonight, I'm going to hand this off to Heather, somebody. Come help me. If you're here tonight, and um, I don't want you to overthink this, but if you're here tonight and you uh, have received a healing, a miracle, a breakthrough, financial provision, don't, don't you know, overcomplicate this and say, well, it's not as significant as someone else's story. But tonight, if you've received a miracle, a healing, a breakthrough, I want you here at Celebration Church at any time, I want you to stand to your feet. If you've received a healing, miracle, breakthrough, financial provision, something has happened, come on, stand to your feet. Don't overcomplicate it, just stand. If you've received healing, miracle, breakthrough, come on now. Are y'all out there? Somebody needs to praise the Lord tonight. Now listen, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen tonight. You can be seated. That's awesome. I, and there were others that didn't stand that I think should be standing. I, if you came tonight to see a man perform, you came to the wrong house. If you, and I'll say that again. If you came tonight to see somebody perform on the platform or sing a song or preach your favorite message, you might as well just go ahead and leave because that's not why we're here. If you came expecting Jesus, then you're in the right place. If you have a hunger and a desperation for Jesus, then you're in the right place. That's why I'm here tonight. I'm here because of Him. I'm here because His presence is here. I'm here because He loves me. He's called me. He's chosen me. I'm here tonight because I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that He wants to meet with you. I know tonight that He wants to heal you. I know tonight that He wants to deliver you. I know tonight that He wants to set you free. Amen. I'm going to preach whether you shout or not. I hope that you do. I hope that you go with me tonight. I hope that you plan on going with me somewhere tonight. But, but I'm going to go and I'm going to preach myself happy whether you do or you don't. It doesn't matter. If you believe me or you don't believe me, Jesus can heal you. He can set you free. He can deliver you tonight. That's why he's here. That's why he came. He came, the Bible says, to seek and to save those who are lost. He said that the Spirit of the Lord God was upon him. He had been anointed by the Father. Uh, but Peter, on the day of Pentecost, said this, which you now see in here. He's pouring out at, at Cornelius' house. He talked about how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Ghost and power who went about healing and doing good, delivering people from demon possession, all the things. I believe that he's still doing that today. He wants to do it tonight. He wants to do it tonight. Tell somebody next to you, he wants to do it tonight. He has not changed. 
He said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. He wants to do it in your life tonight. Now listen, how do, you, how do you receive a miracle tonight? Well, it's real easy. God does it. You receive it. It's really that simple. God does the work. You just have to receive it. How did you receive salvation? You just received by faith. Did anybody have to do a dance over you or tap you on the head or anoint you seven times and make you go dip in the baptismal pool ten times for you to receive salvation? No, it was a, it was a gift received by faith. And so the same is true tonight. You're going to receive by faith. God is going to do a miracle in your life tonight. And he's going to do it by faith. He's going to, I said he's going to do it by faith. The first step is that you've got to see and perceive through the eyes, the ears, the senses of faith what God wants to do in your life tonight. You know, when you're, when you're driving down the road, I'm going to get to my message in just a second. We're going to go Luke 22. But when you're driving down the road, you don't do it with your eyes closed and your ears plugged. I hope you don't. If you do, let me introduce you to the police officer. You don't do that, right? You, you drive down the road with your, with your eyes open, if you're, your glasses on, your contacts in, whatever you need to be able to see. You, you're dry, right? You see, and you got your ears open, right? And why is that? Because you got to be able to see what's coming. You got to be able to see, they do this wonderful test at the driver's place about your peripheral vision. Can you see what's back over here, you know, on the sides of your eyes? Can you be able, can, are you able to see that? And they test your range of vision so that you can see what's coming. Well, our faith is our spiritual perception. It's our ability to be able to see what's coming. And if you're, if you're not careful, your eyes of faith, you'll shut your eyes of faith when God's moving and He's doing something powerful, but He wants you to have your eyes wide open to see what He's doing. He wants you to be able to hear what He's saying. He's wanting you to be able to touch and perceive it with your senses, your spiritual senses, sensitivity, your faith tonight. So I'm going to challenge you to turn on your spiritual sensitivity tonight. Well, I'm glad three of you agree with me. I'm going to challenge you to turn on. It's true whether you agree or not. It's Bible. So the just shall live by Thank you. So we're going to turn on our Okay, let's try that one more time. We're going to turn on our faith tonight. And faith produces a confident expectation. When you see what's coming, if you're driving down the road and you see, you see a car coming at you, they've crossed the center line and, and, and they're coming head on at you, what do you do? You don't stay in the lane. You jerk the wheel, right? You get out of the way. There's a response that happens because you see what's coming. There's a confident expectation that that car, unless they move, are going to hit you head on. So you got to get out of the way, right? So through the eyes of faith, when you see what's coming, uh, we don't get out of the way. We get in the way. We put ourselves in the path of allurement. We see Jesus coming down the road and like blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we begin to cry out and put ourselves in the path like the woman with the issue of, I'm preaching and nobody's helping me, like the woman with the issue of blood. We see Jesus coming down the road. So we put ourselves in a place to have an encounter with him. Zacchaeus had to climb up in a tree. Some of you might need to climb. Please don't climb up on the pews. But you might need to climb up some spiritual trees tonight to see Jesus. So whatever, 
whatever the Lord is trying to do in your life tonight. Somebody tried that, I think, to put the hole in the roof. (coughs) Whatever you got to do to get in the path of allurement tonight, activate your faith and have a confident expectation that Jesus is going to meet you tonight. I, I am encouraged to see the number of people that stood up that said that they've had a miracle. That was more, probably two-thirds of the room stood up and said that they've experienced a miracle. Uh, Mike, can I tell you just quickly the story about your eyes? The, yeah, okay. So the eye doctor said a couple of weeks ago that they thought he might have glaucoma. Six months ago, he might have glaucoma. There was, come up here. Let's just do this. He's going to tell it. I can't tell it. He's going to tell it. So just let him tell it. Okay, so six months uh, at a regular checkup, ooh, we got a problem. Uh, it could be because you took a cortisone injection, should never have done that, okay. We'll check in six months because that stuff will be fleshed out of you in six months. Six months later, still got all the same issues in my eyes. They said, come in next week for further testing. We are very concerned you're going blind. Um, and we will do some extensive tests. They told you you were going blind. This great, yeah. great doctors. Well, you know, they were telling what they knew. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm being honest with you. I've started thinking, okay, I can play the guitar, but I can't read music. You know, I mean, I'm thinking things like that. I'm thinking, okay, I could get dressed, but I don't know if I match. You know, I'm, I, I'm thinking those things. Anyway, but I'm, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm thinking, okay, for some reason I'm not scared. So the phone call came. I see who it is. I answer the phone. Yeah, uh, Mr. Sloan, we've got your test results. And everything looks normal. We'll see you in September. And and again, I'm more excited than you are. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. No blindness. Just cancel that report. Tonight, I am going to do my best to paint a picture of the sufferings of Christ as he went to the cross. Today's Good Friday. I'm going to do my best to paint a picture in words of of our suffering Savior and the agony that he faced. You say, well, that's a real faith builder. I hope that it is, because when you take a look at the agony of Christ, the suffering of Christ, you can then recognize what what he did and how he paid for your suffering. When you recognize that Jesus went through the cross, today's Good Friday, He went to the cross, went through the suffering, went through the agony, so that you and I can have peace. So that you and I don't have to go through the same suffering and torment that He went through. Come on, somebody. He... He took the agony so you could have peace. He took the agony so that you could have healing. He took the agony so that you could have salvation. He took the agony so that your family could be restored. He took the agony so that your mind could be healed. He took the agony that your soul might be at peace. So when you see the suffering Savior... Oh, it's not just the, the suffering, but, but I see the price that He paid for me. So tonight, as you, as you hear these words and you hear these scriptures, let it, let it go deep into your heart and may you see the suffering Savior and how He paid for your healing and He paid for your peace and He paid for your redemption tonight.
If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Luke 22. <laughs> Somebody's excited. In Luke 22 and 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And as he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat become like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In John 18, verse 37, it says, For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. Jesus came into this world emptying himself of his heavenly splendor, and he took on the nature of humankind. He took on our broken nature, the one who is altogether lovely, the one who's altogether beautiful, the fairest of 10,000, took on the brokenness of humanity. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was born without attractiveness. He was born without splendor. He came with the nature and the circumstances to suffer. He did not take on superhuman abilities. He didn't become Spider-Man or uh, any of the superheroes. He took on the brokenness of humanity. He didn't come as a triumphant king. He came as a baby in a manger for you and I. From the moment he was born, he was born into circumstances that led to his suffering. He was born outside of marriage in a culture which his mother could have been made to be a single mom and ostracized from her family. Herod attempted to kill him. Herod was threatened by the news that a king had been born, and he, he ordered the murder of all of the, of the male babies. His half-brothers didn't understand him. They didn't understand his purpose. Matter of fact, the Bible, we know through Scripture that James, his half-brother, did not believe in Jesus or his calling until after the resurrection. He grew up in Nazareth, and you've all heard it said, 
what good could come out of Nazareth. His circumstances in which he grew up led to a place of suffering. He was born into a carpenter's family. He didn't have prestige. He didn't have money. He didn't have wealth. He didn't have influence. But he was born into a place of humility, of absolute condescension for you and I. The word here uh, for agony, if you go back to Luke 22, it says that he was in agony. The word agony there is to wrestle or to fight, to strive, to endure. Vincent Word Study says that it's an agony of growing intensity. It's not just to have agony, but to become. It's uh, a sense of growing, increasing intensity of agony. It's having become in agony. Our agony began at his prayer and it increased into an intense struggle of prayer and sorrow. He was under so much strife and conflict within himself. The Bible says that he began to sweat drops of blood. This day... Good Friday, the day where Jesus was brutally murdered. He found himself in the garden praying and crying out for you and I under intense agony over the judgment that was to come. In Psalms 22, it's a prophetic scripture from David. In Psalms 22, 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and my, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. 
Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. They afflict, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Hallelujah. He has done it. Yes, he has. Somebody praise him. He has done it. Hallelujah. What did Christ see that caused him such great agony? In Matthew 20, verse 22, he says, Are you able to drink the cup I am about to drink? Christ's suffering on the cross was the principal agony and pain that he would suffer. But in the garden, God opened up for Christ, as it were, the realities of what was to come. In Matthew, three prayers of Jesus are recorded from the garden. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he prayed a third time, saying the same words. The reality of his purpose in the garden had come into full view. This was no longer something that was to happen or was to come, but it was unfolding before his very eyes. Let me describe for you what he was about to face. Flogging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman, and Roman senators or soldiers, except in cases of desertion, were exempt. The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. Occasionally, wood posts were also used. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing, and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, the buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the soldiers and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. After the scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victim. 
As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause contusions to the skin, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have been determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. At the praetorium, Jesus was severely whipped. A detailed word study of the ancient Greek text indicates that the scourging of Jesus was particularly harsh. It is not known whether the number of lashes was limited to 39 in accordance with Jewish law. The Roman soldiers, amused that this weakened man had claimed to be a king, began to mock him by placing a robe on his shoulders and a crown of thorns on his head and a wooden staff as a scepter in his right hand. Next, they spat on Jesus and struck him on the head with a wooden staff. Moreover, when the soldiers tore the robe from Jesus' back, they probably reopened the scourging wounds. The severe scourging with its intense pain and incredible blood loss most probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. Moreover, the rupture of capillaries and blood vessels had rendered his skin extremely tender. The physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep, also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at a critical stage. After the scourging and mocking at about 9 a.m., the Roman soldiers put Jesus' clothes back on him, then led him and two thieves to be crucified. Jesus apparently was so weakened by the severe flogging that he could not carry the crossbeam from the praetorium to the site of the crucifixion one-third of a mile. Although the Romans did not invent crucifixions, they perfected it, as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. It was one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution and usually was reserved only for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. Roman law usually protected Roman citizens from crucifixion except in desertion by soldiers. It was customary for the condemned man to carry his own cross from the flogging post to the site of crucifixion outside the city walls. He was usually naked unless this was prohibited by local customs. Since the weight of the entire cross was probably well over 300 pounds, only the crossbar was carried. The crossbar, weighing 75 to 125 pounds, was placed across the nape of the victim's neck and balanced along both shoulders. Usually the outstretched arms then were tied to the crossbar. The processional to the site of the crucifixion was led by a complete Roman military guard headed by a centurion. One of the soldiers carried a sign on which the condemned man's name and crime were displayed. Later, that sign would be attached to the top of the cross. The Roman guard would not leave the victim until they were sure of his death. Outside the city walls was permanently located the heavy, upright wooden stipes on which the crossbar would be secured. To prolong the crucifixion process, a horizontal wooden block or plank serving as a crude seat often was attached midway down the stipes. 
At the site of execution, by law, the victim was given a bitter drink of wine mixed with myrrh, or we know it in scripture as gall, as a mild analgesic. The criminal was then thrown to the ground on his back with his shoulders outstretched along the crossbar. The hands could be nailed or tied to the crossbar, but nailing was the preferred by the Romans. The archaeological remains of the crucified, of crucified bodies dating from the time of Christ indicate that the nails were tapered iron spikes approximately five to seven inches long with a square shaft of three-eighths inches across. Findings have documented that the nails commonly were driven through the wrist rather than the palms. After both arms were fixed to the crossbar, the crossbar and the victim together with the lifted, were lifted onto the stipes. Next, the feet were nailed to the cross. To accomplish this, the flexion of the knees may have been quite prominent and the bent legs may have been rotated laterally. When the nailing was completed, the sign was attached to the cross by nails or cords just above the victim's head. The soldiers and the civilian crowd often taunted and jeered the condemned man, and the soldiers customarily divided up the clothing among themselves. The length of survival generally ranged from three or four hours to three or four days and appears to have been inversely related to the severity of the scourging. However, even if the scourging had been relatively mild, the Roman soldiers could hasten death by breaking the legs below the knees. Not uncommonly, insects would light upon or burrow into the open wounds or the eyes and ears and nose of the dying and helpless victim, and birds of prey would tear at these sites. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. However, by Roman law, the family of the condemned could take the body for burial after obtaining permission from the Roman judge. Since no one was intended to survive crucifixion, the body was not released to the family until the soldiers were sure that the victim was dead. By custom, one of the Roman guards would pierce the body with a sword or lance. Traditionally, this had been considered a spear wound to the heart through the right side of the chest, a fatal wound probably taught to most Roman soldiers. With knowledge of both anatomy and ancient crucifixion practices, one may reconstruct the probable medical aspects of this form of slow execution. Each wound was intended to produce intense agony, and the contributing causes of death were numerous. The scourging prior to crucifixion served to weaken the condemned man, and if blood loss was considerable, to produce orthostatic hypotension, and even hypovolemic shock. When the victim was thrown to the ground on his back in preparation for transfixion of his hands, his scourging runes most likely would become torn open again and contaminated with dirt. Furthermore, furthermore, with each respiration, the painful scourging wounds would be scraped against the rough wood of the stipes. As a result, blood loss from the back probably would continue throughout the crucifixion ordeal. With arms outstretched but not taut, the wrists were nailed to the crossbar. It has been shown that the ligaments and bones of the wrist can support the weight of the body from, hang from hanging on them, but the palms cannot. The driven nail would crush or sever the rather large sensor motor median nerve. The stimulated nerve would produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. Although the severed median nerve would result in paralysis of a portion of the hand, ischemic contractures and impalement of various ligaments by the iron spike might produce a claw-like grasp. <clears throat> 
Although the scourging may have resulted in considerable blood loss, crucifixion per se was a relatively bloodless procedure since no major arteries other than perhaps the deep plantar arch passed through the favored anatomic site of transfixion. The weight of the body pulling down on the outstretched arms and soldiers shoulders would tend to fix the intercostal muscles in an inhalation state and thereby hinder passive exhalation. Accordingly, to exhale was primarily a diaphragmatic and breathing was shallow. It is likely that this form of respiration would not suffice and that the hypercarbia would soon result. The onset of muscle cramps or tenatic contractions due to fatigue and hypercarbia would hinder respiration even further. In other words, couldn't breathe. Adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows and and adducting the shoulders. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals and would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexion of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrist about the iron nails and cause fiery pain along the damaged median nerves. Lifting of the body would also painfully scrape the scourge back against the rough wooden stipes. Muscle cramps and parathesis thesis of the outstretched and uplifted arms would add to the discomfort. As a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and lead eventually to asphyxia. The actual cause of death by crucifixion was somewhat varied in each case, but the two prominent causes were hypovolemic shock and exhaustion by asphyxia. Other possible contributing factors included dehydration, stress-induced arrhythmias, and congestive heart failure with the rapid accumulation of pericardial and perhaps pleural effusions. Crucif fracture or breaking of the legs below the knees, if performed, led to asphyxic death within minutes. Death by crucifixion, in every sense of the word, excruciating. After the scourging and the mocking at about 9 a.m., the Roman soldiers put Jesus' clothes back on him, led him and two thieves to be crucified. Jesus apparently was so weakened by the severe flogging that he could not carry the cross by crossbar from the praetorium to the site of the crucifixion, one-third of a mile. Simon of Cyrene was summoned to carry Christ's cross, and the processional then made its way to Golgotha, or Calvary, an established crucifixion site. Here Jesus' clothes, except for a linen loincloth, again were removed, thereby probably reopening the scourging wounds. He was then offered a drink of wine mixed with myrrh, but after tasting it, he refused the drink. Finally, Jesus and the two thieves were crucified. Although scriptural references are made to the nails in the hand, these are not at odds with archaeological evidence of wrist wounds, since the ancient customary considered the wrist as part of the hand. The sign was attached above Jesus' head. The soldiers and the civilian crowd taunted Jesus throughout the crucifixion ordeal. The soldiers cast lots for his clothing. Christ spoke seven times from the cross. Since speech occurs during exhalation, these short, terse utterances must have been particularly difficult and painful. At about 3 p.m. that Friday, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, bowed his head, and died. The Roman soldiers and onlookers recognized his moment of death. Since the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the crosses after sunset, the beginning of the Sabbath, they asked Pontius Pilate to 
to order crucifixion to hasten the deaths of the three crucified men. The soldiers broke the legs of the two thieves, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Rather, one of the soldiers pierced his side, probably with an infantry spear, and produced a sudden flow of blood and water. And later that day, Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb. In Matthew 16 and 21, the Bible says, From that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and he was to be killed. And John Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. He had always had this day in view. It was coming. But now, this moment in the garden, he began to see what was to come, the judgment he was to face. The day was at hand. Within that very same hour, Judas would come and deliver him into the hands of those that would kill him. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Christ was brought to the mouth of the fiery furnace, and he looked into it with its raging flames and the glowing heat, and he saw what he was about to suffer. The conflict of his soul became so dreadful, agony beyond description, beyond expression. In Matthew 26 and verse 37, it says that he began to be sorrowful and very heavy, in Mark 14, it says, And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. In Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. In Luke, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. These great drops in the Greek mean clots or lumps of blood that have been pressed through the pores of his skin because of such a violent internal struggle and conflict. It was important that the father gave his son the view of what was to come. It was important that Christ saw the agony that he was to face so that he might voluntarily and willingly embrace it himself. In John 10, 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. He saw what was to come. And he said, I'll lay down my life. He said, I will submit to the will of the Father. He said, I love them. I love the world. I love the lost. And I love my Father so much that I will embrace the agony of this death. I will embrace the agony of their judgment. And in this moment, we see the glory of Christ's love for the lost. And we see the glory of his submission to the Father. Christ's soul was overwhelmed that day with great agony, with a deluge of grief. But at the same time, with a great 
deluge, an ocean of love towards sinners. Oh, the love of Jesus that was being poured out upon you and I that day. An ocean of love that would overwhelm the highest of mountains. An ocean of love that could overwhelm the darkest of sin stain in your life. The ocean of his love was being poured out that day. It was as if God was saying to, to the Son, here's the furnace, here's, here's the furnace of judgment that you must face. Either you embrace this furnace or the cause of salvation is done. Either you must embrace the wrath, the, embrace the judgment that's to come on Calvary's cross or the cause of salvation is over. And Jesus cast himself fully into the effort. He cast himself fully into the mission of saving the lost and pouring out this ocean of love for you and I. It was the corruption and the wickedness of men that contrived and affected his death. It was the wickedness of men that agreed with Judas. It was the wickedness of men that betrayed Jesus and that apprehended him and bound him and led him away. It was men's corruptions and wickedness that he was arraigned and falsely accused and unjustly judged. It was by men's wickedness that he was reproached and mocked and spit upon. It was by men's wickedness that Barabbas was preferred before him. It was men's wickedness that laid the cross upon him to bear and that nailed him to it and put him to an inhumane death. It was the wickedness of man. It was your sin. It was your sin that nailed him to the cross. It was your sin that he embraced the judgment. But Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and his name, oh, that name shall be called Wonderful. Unto you and I a son is given. Unto you, unto me, a Savior was born, and his name shall be called Marvelous, shall be called Wonderful. Can you consider with me this moment the wonderful nature of Jesus, the marvelous nature of this one who humbled himself to the point of death, the one who humbled himself and became a man for you and I, the one who took on the humanity, who faced the open furnace of judgment of God's wrath on sin for you and I. This one is wonderful. The one who's creator of all things and manifest himself came and dwelt among you and I as a human. He took on frailty, the human nature that you and I have. He humbled himself and manifest himself among us. He didn't send another. He came himself. And his name is Wonderful. 
He became our mediator. We don't have an earthly mediator any longer. We have a heavenly mediator, a God-man mediator. He sits at the right hand of the Father today. He's able to make perfect and permanent intercession for you and I because he embraced the cross, he embraced the suffering, and he has sat down today. He's interceding for you and I. He's the wonderful intercessor today. He's our wonderful mediator between God and you. God and me stands a wonderful mediator who's familiar with our weaknesses, who's familiar with our suffering. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. He endured the hatred of those he came to serve. He humbled himself and served even those who nailed him to a cross. His name is wonderful. He willingly laid down his life for you and for me. He is wonderful. He didn't stay in a grave. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, but he resurrected, and he is wonderful. He has resurrection power, and he's wonderful. And the same spirit, the same resurrection life that flowed in him is flowing in you and I, and he is wonderful. He freely has given us all things. He seated us in heavenly places, and his name is wonderful. He's interceding on your behalf today. He's praying. He's praying for you. He's praying for your situation. He's praying for your hurt. He's praying for your family. He's praying for their salvation. And he is wonderful. He's wonderful. He's pouring out his spirit on his sons and daughters. He's giving them signs and wonders. He's showing. He's showing dreams and visions and he is wonderful he hasn't left us he'll never forsake us his name is wonderful there's a day coming friend when the eastern sky will split and Jesus our Savior will come again and his name is wonderful he's wonderful He's wonderful. He's wonderful. Woo! He's wonderful. Woo! There's an old hymn. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And how could he love me, a sinner condemned unclean? He took my sins and my sorrow. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary, and he suffered, and he died alone. When with the ransom and glory his face I at last shall see, Twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous. How and my song shall ever be. Ooh. Oh, is my sin. Love 
Somebody praise him. Somebody praise him. How marvelous. How wonderful. Even with the view of the judgment that was to come, he chose to take the cup of judgment and drink from it. When Judas came with the Roman soldiers, he could have ran. He could have called for legions of angels to rescue him. He could have allowed his disciples to fight for him. When he said, I am he, and the Roman soldiers fell to the ground, he could have escaped. But standing there with blood-stained clothes and a body that was overcome with agony, he took the cup for you and I. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Where our first father Adam failed in submission to the will of God, Christ did not fail. Where we fail, Christ did not fail. The agony of Christ should awaken you and I from our slumber. How foolish are sinners who are under the threatening of the same wrath of God and are condemned to it, are at every moment exposed to it. And yet, instead of having intense agony over their impending judgment, are unconcerned and are provoking the wrath of God even more. Consider the agony that Christ went through in this judgment that he faced. The furnace of God's judgment was open against him. The furnace of wrath and judgment have been opened against those who reject Christ. Heated even seven times hotter than what Christ endured. Don't assume for a moment that if you're away from God that you'll escape the wrath of God against sin and against those who reject Christ. Judas was a follower of Christ. He did good things. He managed the ministry money. He did good with the ministry money, but he still found himself under the wrath of Almighty God. The agony which Christ endured will be totally different for the wicked. Christ was not judged by a guilty or condemning conscience, but those who are wicked will be judged for all eternity by their own inward lusts and corruptions. The unrighteous in hell will be tormented with unrestrained violence and envy and malice against God and those in heaven and against one another for all eternity. The very sin that the wicked lived in in this life, the very bondage that they in, enjoyed in this life will torment them for all eternity. Christ knew that God infinitely loved him, and yet those in hell will know that God is not their God and stands fully as their judge and their enemy and that his wrath is fully against them. Christ did not suffer as the wicked do, Hell is a place of eternal judgment and despair. Christ had the joy of redemption set before him. Christ had the joy of what the suffering would produce before him. But those 
who are wicked and reject Christ will for all eternity, for day after day after day after day, will see no end in sight and will see their judgment upon them day after day after day. So what are we to do with Christ, our suffering Savior? Tonight, dive into the ocean of His love. Tonight, dive into the expansive ocean of His love that poured and is pouring out from His heart. Wave after wave after wave after wave of unconditional, unearned, unmerited love is pouring out over you tonight. You can open up your love arms and receive from the Father tonight. Paul said, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width what is the length? What is the depth and the height? To know, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When you face suffering, know that Christ has endured the pinnacle of suffering and the depravity of man. You can say like the 23rd Psalm, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for He is with me. The one who is conquered, the one who is overcome, walks with me. Goodness and mercy are following me. I have the same. The resurrected Christ walks with me through this valley. The resurrected one, the one that's overcome death, walks with me. Whether it is depression or fear or anxiety or worry, the resurrected Christ walks with you tonight. The resurrected one, the resurrected one is walking with you. And he can bring life. He can bring hope in the darkness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will not walk in fear because the resurrected one is walking with me. My good shepherd is walking with me. The payment for your peace was upon him. The payment for your peace was made by Christ. It doesn't mean that suffering won't come. Matter of fact, Jesus said in this life you will have sufferings. But he said, peace I leave with you. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere. I have to complete my mission. But I leave with you, John 14. I leave with you something. I'm not leaving you as orphans. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. 
The Holy Spirit. I'm sending another helper. He's your peace. He's your love. He's your standby. He's your advocate. He'll be with you. I'm not leaving you. I will be with you to the end of the age. You have peace. The punishment of your sin was upon Him. You can live free from condemnation. You can live free from guilt. You can live free from the burden of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation. There's no condemnation. Say that with me. There's no condemnation. That deals with your guilty conscience. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The agony and the torment that the lies of the enemy will bring against you in your own mind. The torment of the skeletons in your closet, the torment of the agony of the things you've said or done or places you've gone, the things that would torment you. There is no condemnation. Christ removes it. He washes it clean. You don't have to be tormented any longer. You don't have to be bothered by the things of your past. The lies of the enemy, the things of your past can be washed away by the same blood of Calvary. And He paid the price for you to be healed completely. In Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore, He is able to save completely. He's able to sozo those who come to God through Him. The word sozo is to save, deliver, protect, heal, preserve, to make whole. He's able to save you completely. He's able to deliver you completely. He's able to protect you completely. He's able to heal you completely. He's able to preserve you completely. He's able to make you whole completely. The things that torment you, that bother you, the illness, the disease, the frustration, the spiritual bondage, the sin that easily ensnares you, the weight that encumbers you, He's able to completely, completely save you. Completely save you. Oh, you may have been born again 50 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe yesterday, but the journey of salvation, the journey of His healing, the journey of His preservation, the journey of His delivering work continues day after day after day after day. He's making you every bit whole. Would you stand with me? Our suffering Savior. Tonight, what are you going to do with the suffering Savior? Can I make a proposition? I propose that tonight 
you do exactly what He paid for. Tonight, I propose that you do exactly what He paid for. And you find yourself at the altar of His presence, crying out to Him, saying, Lord, make me whole again. Make me ever, ever more whole. Make me ever more changed. Make me ever more transformed. Continue your work in my life. Continue your work in my life. For some of you tonight, that might be a healing. It might be a physical healing that you need. Physically healed. There might be pain in your body. There might be pain in your physical body. And tonight you're going to walk out of here with no pain, no suffering whatsoever. Tonight there might be some sort of physical ailment that Jesus will heal you from. And you're going to come to this altar tonight and Jesus is going to heal your body. He's going to make you ever, every bit whole in your physical being, physical self. Tonight, maybe it's not physical. Maybe you're coming with a mental weight, an emotional weight. Something's weighing on your mind. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're here with PTSD. Maybe you're here with depression. Maybe you're here with schizophrenia. Maybe you're here with other ailments of the mind or mental health or emotional health. Jesus can heal your mind. Jesus can heal your emotions. He can heal your soul tonight. Maybe you're here with a spiritual sickness and there's a disease in your heart. There's a disease called sin and it's eating away like cancer at your heart. It's eating away at your spiritual condition. It's called sin and it's eating you alive. There's a bondage in your soul and it's called sin. Come to the altar tonight and find healing for the disease called sin. Oh, there's only one cure, a vaccine seen from the doctor's office won't do it. But the only thing that can do it is the blood of Jesus. One drop of His blood can set you free from whatever spiritual sickness ails you. Whether it's an addiction, whether it's pornography, whether it's a lying tongue or a gossiping spirit, or you're not born again, whatever it is, Jesus can heal you and set you free tonight. And maybe you're here tonight and you say, Pastor, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I don't have a sickness. Emotionally, mentally, I'm okay. Doing good. I don't have a major sin issue in my life that I know of. Good. There's a place for you at the altar too. Because we're ever being made into the image of Christ. <laughs> See, part of sozo Part of that healing is that you're beholding Him. You're, you're getting lost in Him. And He's transforming you from one glory to the next. So my point in saying in all this is that no matter who you are or what you came in with tonight, I would venture to say that everyone, everyone should come to the altar tonight. And what a better day on Good Friday to say, Lord, I'm, I'm coming to the altar. I'm going to do something. With the suffering that you took, I'm not going to let it go to waste tonight. I'm not, I'm not going to waste the agony any longer. 
I'm not going to waste the suffering that you endured any longer. I'm not going to waste the agony any longer. I'm coming tonight for you to do something in my life. The altar's open. Come on. Get out of your seat and come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. You need healing. Come on. You need freedom. Come on. Come on. Come quick. Come quick. Come quick. Come on. Before we do anything else, I just want everyone to be able to get to the altar. Because miracles are going to happen tonight. God's going to meet you in a powerful, special way tonight. Come get close. Come get close to the platform. Come on. Come on. Jesus is Jesus is here. 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 Hallelujah. Can you shut the door? Jesus. Jesus. Now here's what's going to happen. <clears throat> Come on, if you're here for prayer, just step forward. If you're here for prayer, if you need to sit in the front row, that's fine. Just come close. Jesus. Jesus.